So I'm not going to be addressing the approach of the mainline denominations. You guys know what the mainline denominations are? So we have like the, um, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. Uh, we have the ELCA, which I think ironically called the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, even though there's nothing evangelical about that. We have the Episcopal Church. These denominations for decades have been affirming same-sex relationships. And I'm not gonna be a- a- addressing their approach because their approach, they would actually, several would agree that the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. You know how they get around it? The Bible's just wrong there. <laughs> yeah. They would say the Bible's good. It's mostly right. But I'm not taking that approach because that's, that's uh, many of them would, would agree with us. But I'm talking about People who are attending churches like ours, churches that we would sing all the same songs, and they would say, I believe in Jesus, and I believe we're sinners, and I believe in the gospel. But their point is that it's just been misinterpreted. So we're going to be talking about these different views but I want to be clear, I don't want you to view this as more ammunition to tuck away into your, into your belt, to go do battle with those people that are so wrong. Because I've never met anyone who has debated into the kingdom. <laughs> it's through relationships that we engage with people, that draw people to Christ. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull them out or your e-readers, um, get ready because we're going to be going through this. But before we talk about these Bible passages, I want to talk about interpretation. Interpretation is the fancy word is called hermeneutics. It's the principles. Oh, if you would like my notes, you can scan this QR code and you could get a digital copy of my notes. So I would actually, if, if you guys are note takers, I would encourage you to scan this QR code, get a PDF file, because there's going to be tons of information. Of all my talks, this is going to be a lot. My next talk is going to have a lot of notes as well. And uh, it'll be almost too much stuff to try to write down. So you can get this. It's free. If, if you don't have Dropbox, you can actually say no thank you. Like you, don't have to, you do not have to sign up for Dropbox if you don't want to. Um, so you could just kind of click out of that, X out of it or something like that, or cancel, and you could just view my notes. If you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. <laughs> you can actually uh, jot down the shortened URL there at the bottom. And, or actually, I should shoot, use this thing, the thing that'll like burn a hole in the wall, right? <laughs> my goodness. Um, so uh, you can sh- jot down the shortened URL and actually get the same thing. And um, uh, you can even bring it home and put it on your desktop, your laptop, or anything like that. Now, before we talk, we're going to talk about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is basically the principles of interpretation. What I learned in Bible college and in seminary is that um, hermeneutics, when applied to the Bible, is it's the science and art of biblical interpretation. It's a science because there's a method to it. It's an art because it's more than just a method. There's 
kind of, it's a skill, it's something you can learn, it's you can hone. It also requires more than just, just a, you know, step-by-step process. Most, most importantly, it requires the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth. So a part of interpretation is relying on the Holy Spirit that illumines our mind. Now, those of us who hold to the biblical view of sexuality, that sex is reserved for male and female in marriage, but biblical is kind of debated, right? Both sides say, oh, I have the biblical view, you don't. So this view that sex is reserved for husband and wife in marriage is sometimes called the traditional view. I don't like that term traditional because I don't follow traditions. Traditions are man-made. I follow scripture. I want to follow what scripture teaches us. But that's what's being used. Actually, if they, if they don't, if we can't, you know, if we're debating over what is biblical or not, I actually must prefer historical. This is the historic Christian view. Traditions, I don't know, it just kind of sounds negative. But that's a view that's often said. So it's the traditional view of sexuality. Now, we have things that are important to us when it comes to interpretation. Our priorities. We're up at the very, very top. We have Scripture. Scripture is the most important. It is inerrant, meaning there's no errors. It's infallible, meaning it is unfailing. It's a final word on faith and ethics, especially sexual ethics. Some denominations are saying, oh, it's only true for everything pertaining to salvation. But what if the Bible is not pertaining to salvation? So that's the whole Bible. Um, now, underneath that is reason and science. I don't believe reason and science or nature uh, contradict God's word because reason and science and nature, that's general revelation. General revelation never contradicts God's special revelation. Then underneath that is experience. Our experiences in life can help us to understand certain passages. If you're a widow, those passages in the Bible mean something different for you. If you are a single person, passages in the Bible that talk about singleness mean something different to us, more to us. So experience can help us apply God's word, but our life experience should never reinterpret God's word. Now, those who don't hold to the biblical view, often called progressive view. Now, just as I don't like the term traditions, traditional, I also don't like the word progressive. I don't like that word progressive. And not even just because it's a political term, but I actually don't like it because it's not accurate. Progressive means you're moving forward. You're not going backwards because if you go backwards, that's not progressive, right? So let's take a little journey in history. Let's go back 2,000 years to the time of ancient Rome. Were same-sex relationships common or uncommon then? Common, very common. Let's even go back several hundred years before that to the time of ancient Israel. All the nations around Israel, all the pagan nations around Israel, were same-sex sex, was same-sex sex common or uncommon then? Very common. 
So is progressive even historically accurate? <laughs> no. So when people are like, I have the progressive view, I was like, have you read history? Just saying. It's not progressive. There's nothing progressive about the world. Everything that's going on today happened in the past. It's not progressive. If we're really, really going to be accurate, historically accurate, it's regressive. That's true, but a bit snarky. So I'm not going to go with that. It's, I'm going to call it the revisionist view. It's revising what has been historically in the church, unanimously in the church for the past 2,000 years, up until recently, until all of a sudden the, the church has become enlightened. But essentially, it's revising what the church and what the Jewish nation has affirmed for millennia. And watch what happens. Now, remember, I'm, I'm talking about our kind of priorities. Watch what happens. It's an inverted hermeneutic. Where no longer is scripture at the top. What's at the very top? Experience. I've never met anyone who's moved from a biblical view of sexuality to a revisionist view of sexuality whose story didn't go something like this. My best friend is gay. My daughter's lesbian. And they love Jesus. So why would God be condemning them? See how it's their experience that's driving their hermeneutics? Never allow your life experiences or your relationship to drive your hermeneutic. Underneath that is reason and science. One very common approach to people who are revisionists, they say, you know, when Paul and Moses wrote those passages, he didn't know what we knew today. He was very lim they were very limited in their knowledge, and they only know of these bad forms of same-sex relationships. They didn't know of these loving monogamous relationships, and they, they, weren't talking, they didn't know of this concept of a sexual orientation like we know today, that sexual orientation, people born this way, they can't help it. There's, that's just the way they are, right? Because scientists, that's what they believe. You, you know, we've studied so much on sexual orientation, and we know so much. And I'm like, what do we actually know about sexual orientation? When I ask people, define sexual orientation for me, please. It's about trying to, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall. What exactly, even the APA, the American Psychological Association, they say it's a pattern of desires. I was like, a pattern? So like argyle or checkered or polka dot <laughs> pattern or what? I mean, what's a pattern of desires? I mean, so um, it's one thing when people say, it's, and it's very common, they say the Bible does not address orientation, the modern concept of orientation. The biblical writers, they didn't have that in mind. Anyone who says that, you know what they're denying? Just the basic doctrine of inspiration. Because it's one thing for someone to say the biblical writers were ignorant. The human authors may not have known everything that we know today in modern times. They didn't know that we had cell phones. They didn't know that we had iPhones or iPads or internet. 
But to say that God didn't know is heresy. Because though Paul or Moses maybe didn't know, God knew. God knew exactly. Nothing takes God by surprise because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Third, underneath that is scripture. And people to hold, hold to this view, they say, no, I have a high view of scripture. But remember, just because you say you have a high view of scripture doesn't actually mean that you do. By saying you have a high view of scripture doesn't guarantee that you have a high, high Bible IQ, nor does it mean you have actually a correct interpretation. So how do I know whether a person has, has a high view of scripture? Well, show me your hermeneutic and I will show you your view of scripture. So to have a high view of scripture means that you have to have a high view hermeneutic. A high view hermeneutics. And so that means that we're, we're going to be doing just proper interpretation. We're gonna look at grammar. We're gonna look at context. And we're gonna begin with a doctrine of inspiration that this word is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It's inspired by God. And therefore, it has no errors. And if God wrote this book, well, I want to know what God meant when, these, books, when this, these words were recorded. It don't really matter what you think or what I think. And this is important. Because all that's being said this morning from the pulpit, from my words, or in the other room by my parents' words, Please do not believe it simply if I said it. Take notes, listen, then go home and open up this book. And if there is anything that I say that contradicts this book, do not believe it. I submit myself fully to the word of God. Anything that I say must submit to this. So we submit ourselves to this, and therefore I want to know what God intended, not what was my intent, what was my thoughts. So we need to do exegesis. If that's a new word for you, exegesis means you're getting the meaning out of the text. E-X, that prefix, means out. Exegesis, you're getting the meaning out of the text. The opposite of that, you do not want to put your meaning into the text, which is where we get this word. We want to do exegesis, we do not want to do eisegesis. Like, well, I want, like, I think God doesn't, uh, I think God blesses same sex marriage, so I'm going to kind of put my meaning into the text. That's eisegesis. We're beginning with our interpretation and then we're making scripture and, and kind of picking and choosing and, and twisting things to make it. That's eisegesis. We want to let the text speak for itself. So we're going to do, so how do you do exegesis? We're going to look at the text. So we're going to look at genre, word meaning, grammar, figures of speech, syntax. We're also going to look at context. Now, we're often accused that we don't do context. What people mean is we're just not looking at the context that they're using. Now, to be clear, context is thrown around a lot, but we don't always fully understand what that means. There's kind of 
two broad categories of context. First is literary context, which is looking at the verses around, before and after, looking at the chapters around it, looking at the whole book. That's literary context. Historical context is looking at, well, when was this book written? Who wrote it? And what was that author dealing with at that time? And then, who was the immediate audience? Like the book of Romans is written to the church at Rome. So when, what was the church at Rome dealing with in the first century? That's historical context. Now, when people accuse us of not using correct context, they don't realize this one thing. They're specifically just talking about historical context, not literary context. That's one thing to know. But the other thing is, when it comes to historical context, you can have right context and wrong context. Because though you might be looking at the right time frame, the time frame might be right, but you could be using the wrong region or the wrong area or the wrong people group. For example, I've heard a pastor say, this is Justin Bieber's former pastor who's now no longer a pastor because he divorced his wife, the Hillsong pastor in New York. I should put quotes around that, pastor, pastor. He said, um, Jesus never said anything about this because, um, which I've heard that, and I'll, we'll talk about it later, but he also added, uh, same-sex relations were very common in the first century, true. Jesus lived in the first century, another true statement. And if it was a big deal for Jesus, because it was so common then, he would have addressed it. False. Because he's using the wrong context to apply to Jesus. And let me explain to you. Those first two statements are true, right? Same-sex relations were very common in first century Rome. Israel was a province of Rome. But were same-sex relationships common in Israel, in first century Israel? No. If you were to compare first century Rome and first century Israel, night and day. Did Jesus go to the Gentiles first? He went to the Jews first. So he's using the wrong context, the Greco-Roman context, to apply to Jesus. Jesus was not ministering to Romans. He was not ministering to the, to the Greeks. He was ministering to the Jews first. So that's a good example of showing that, that you're using the wrong context. You can use the wrong historical context. But how do you know? See, it's difficult, right? I mean, if, if, if you haven't spent like, you know, years studying principles, you know, interpretation, it could be difficult. Let me give you what I believe is the key. It's doing all this, but even doing this, you could kind of be sort of led astray. This is the one key that I think we often miss. And this is what every revisionist misses. When we read the Bible, we must read the Bible canonically. What does that mean? We interpret each verse or each passage in light of the whole Bible. So when I'm reading Genesis, I'm reading it in light of the whole Bible. When I'm reading Isaiah, I'm reading in light of the whole Bible. I'm reading in light of Genesis. I'm reading in light of Deuteronomy. I'm reading it in light of Acts, Revelation. When I'm reading the book of Romans, 
and I'm interpreting a passage there. I'm reading it in light of Exodus. I'm reading it in light of Micah. I'm reading it in light of Galatians. Because even though all these 66 books of the Bible are written by different human authors, what ties them together is the thread of the Holy Spirit where the Bible is one unified witness. And more specifically, biblical authors quote other biblical authors. But not only that, biblical authors often, they might not quote, but they will pull key words. We call that an illusion. Not illusion like abracadabra, I mean an illusion. I'm alluding back to something else. Biblical authors do this all the time. How many of you, uh, anyone have uh, study Bibles? So this is just kind of a, just anyone have it, uh, one with you now? They're, they're just too big to carry. So uh, lift, lift it up. Do you have middle margin? No, I have down below. Okay, so we have footnotes, but some of the, um, or even in the middle, uh, some, some of them have like, like they have stuff, uh, Yes, okay, so yes, in, in between the two, have two columns. You have down here like the commentary part, but in the, in, they have it sometimes have it here or in the middle there. Like, I can't read those anymore, I'm 51. <laughs> I was like, you know, I gotta have like bionic eyes or something to read those. But those things he, in, here are the illusions. So the the people who are printing our Bibles are doing the work for us. Isn't that cool? Yes. Those are all the illusions. And, and isn't it like tons of stuff in there? That's how much the Bible writers, they're, they're including that in there. I don't have it here because I, you know, this is a smaller book that I can carry around. But um, so, so just so you guys know, that's what those are. Those are the, they're cross-references. Biblical writers are doing that all the time. And we miss it. We don't actually see how the Bible is cross or it's connect the dots all over that, all over the place, creating this beautiful tapestry that we often miss. And that's the key to understanding these passages. Because every time I hear a revisionist talk about these passages, you know what they do? They're like, okay, let's look at Genesis 19. And then look at, let's look at this. And they're actually not even showing how they're all connected. And I will show you how all of these passages are actually connected to other verses. As a matter of fact, of the six we're looking at, five of them are tied together. And the spoke of the wheel is Leviticus 20:13. And I'll show that to you, okay? So keep that in mind. The key to reading the Bible is reading the Bible canonically, okay? It's reading the Bible. Say it again. Reading the Bible. Okay, good. So because reading the Bible canonically means that Scripture affirms Scripture. Essentially, Scripture interprets Scripture. And when you read the Bible canonically, that's putting guardrails on your interpretation. Because without that it's easy to drive off the cliff into false teaching. All right? So that's, that's the key to all of these passages. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Genesis 19. Genesis 19. And uh, before we look at these Old Testament passages, there's essentially a few things that we need to remember when we're looking at Old Testament interpretation. 
For Old Testament interpretation, there's two basic questions that we need to ask ourselves. Number one, what is the meaning? Number two, does it apply to us today? Now, there's actually a whole various way of, of understanding the law and the, and the gospel, and I don't wanna get into all the different ways of, of, of doing this, but overall, we know that there, you know, that the long gospel are not the same, and we also know that there are things that carry over from the old to the new. I mean, what's the greatest commandment? Where does that come from? The Old Testament. Where's the second commandment come from? Old Testament, the law. So we know that there's some carryover, there's some overlap, but how do we know that? Because we need to actually, we should all be able to answer that question. We shouldn't just say, oh, nothing in the Old Testament applies to us anymore. Murder, thou shalt not murder. I think that still applies to us today. So there's some overlap, but how? Because this is where the debate comes. And when we don't know the answer, that's why unbelievers, that's why those in the gay community say, you're just picking and choosing. See, how we have to know this really well. And I'm gonna actually, so there's a lot of stuff we're gonna be covering. Genesis 19, this historically has been known that Sodom was destroyed because, or only, only because of the sin of homosexuality. Now, is that true? Well, I'm gonna be talking about this, and I'm gonna be talking about, I'm gonna first talk about how revisionists interpret this passage or reinterpret it. Revisionists, they look at the Genesis 19 and say, Sodom was not destroyed because of homosexuality. Actually, this is common for all six of these passages. They say this, so, uh, that, that um, this passage is not condemning a monogamous same-sex relationship. It's condemning something else. It's condemning another form of same-sex relationship or something like that. So what is it condemning? It's condemning gang rape, they say. So it's not a monogamous same-sex relationship. It's just when men gang rape someone else against their will, uh, you know, consent, right? Isn't that kind of today's way of what is, you know, sexually moral, right? Consent, consent. So that's what's being condemned here. But that's not actually the most common one. The most common way of reinterpreting Genesis 19 is this. Sodom was not condemned because of, um, of homosexuality. They were condemned of inhospitality. <laughs> How many of you guys have not heard that before? I know that sounds really bizarre, but let me just explain this to you. Like, like just pretend that I was a college professor at a secular school at a, I don't know, UC school or something like that and your teenager was attending, and this is the first time they heard something like this. I'm gonna show you how a lot of teens are just thrown off guard. So a revisionist will say something like this. The word Sodom occurs 27 times outside the book of Genesis. Did you know that? Most people will say, hmm, I didn't. Every time you look at those 27 times outside the book of Genesis, never once is the sin of homosexuality mentioned. Hmm. Furthermore, they will go to Ezekiel chapter 16, where it says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. So we're like, well, I better listen. I mean, they're gonna name the sin of Sodom. She was arrogant, overfed and unconcerned and did not help the poor and needy. So you tell me, does that sound like same-sex relationships? And we'll have to admit and say no. Don't worry, I'll be able to explain all this in a moment. 
Um, now, this is a lesser known one. It's so out there that I would say that maybe some of those mainline denominations hold to this because it's so out there. It's trying to do some work in Hebrew, in, in the original language. One of my biblical languages professors told me, uh, biblical languages are kind of like underwear. They're good for support, not good to show off. So I'm always, you know, careful to talk about biblical languages, but I need to correct it when it's being misused. And um, so this is how it's being misused. A revisionist, they will say, actually, there's nothing in this passage that has to do with sexuality at all. Because all the men of Sodom wanted to do, well, well let me first explain. Uh, Genesis 19, verse 5, it says, Bring these men out so we can have sex with them. Literally, it's not to have sex with, it's to know. So a revisionist says there's nothing sexual about this. They just wanted to, to know them, you know, getting to know you, the king and I. <laughs> and you're like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's because it wasn't like, I want to, hi, how are you? It's, what are you doing here? And what, you know, what do you, it's, that's just not nice. And that's not hospitable, they say. It's bizarre, I know, but it's, it's one of those things you might hear out there. Now, I'm going to go through and, and respond to this, but before we do, we need to look at like what's really going on in Genesis 19 and do some context, some literary context, because if you would go to Genesis 13, the first time that Sodom was mentioned, you will find that Abram, before he's Abraham, and Lot, his nephew's herdsmen, were quarreling, and so they split apart, and then it says that Lot chose to go in one side. He says Lot went and settled among the cities of, of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. As far as means it's really far away and it could have a negative connotation as we see here because in verse 13 of chapter 13, it says, now the men of Sodom were wicked. As if that wasn't enough. It says they were great sinners, right? Exceedingly wicked against the Lord. So oftentimes we're like looking so much into Genesis 19, what's going on here? Why were they, you know, why did God destroy them? But Genesis 13, it already says they were exceedingly wicked. They were great sinners against the Lord. So we don't even have to look at Genesis 19. But you know what I actually love about this? Is this also shows the full character of God. Because who is our God? He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he always gives people many opportunities to repent as he did with Sodom. See, we, we miss this. We only go to, when we think about Sodom, we go to Genesis 19, but we forget Genesis 13, God gave them an opportunity over and over and over to repent, but they didn't because Genesis 18 comes along and it says that, uh, that uh, the sin of Sodom, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. So God decides to destroy Sodom and he shares that with Abraham. Abraham is thinking, my nephew's there, and I want to save my nephew. So he begins negotiating with God. Remember that? He's like, okay, God, how about 50 righteous people? And God's like, fine. Abraham's smart. And he's like, I've been there, and 50 righteous people is a lot of people. All <laughs> right? <laughs> Just saying. He's like, God, how about 45? How about 40, 30, 20, 10? Fine, if I find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. Sends two angels, guess what? Can't even find 10 righteous people. So God destroys the city, saves Lot and his daughters, tries to save his wife, turns into a pillar of salt. So what's the moral of the story? What's the key to biblical interpretation? Reading the Bible? Canonically. 
So that means I'm going to read Genesis 19 in light of the whole Bible. And when I read the whole Bible, I find in the New Testament where it says in 2 Peter that Sodom was made an example, listen to that word, example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. In Jude verse 7, it says that Sodom served as an example, again, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So what is Sodom really an example of? What is Sodom a symbol of? Actually, they're not a symbol of the sin of homosexuality. So when we talk about sodomy, I think that's a misnomer. I don't think it's correct just to think of that that's the only sin. Sodom, actually, the biblical writers saw Sodom as a symbol of God's just wrath. God is always justified and punished the wicked. Always, always, always. So what was Sodom guilty of? Just one sin? No, they were guilty of many, 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 many sins. So were they guilty of gang rape? Yes. Were they guilty of inhospitality? Yes. Were they guilty of same-sex relationships? Yes. But why could I say that? Because I read the Bible canonically. Remember, we mentioned Ezekiel, and that seems to throw us off. Wow, arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. That doesn't sound like same-sex relationships. Well, this is where people like reading with tunnel vision because they don't even look, read the verse following because the verse following says this. They, meaning Sodom and Gomorrah, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. This verb did or committed and this direct object is very significant. Abomination occurs a lot of times in the Old Testament, but it's mostly in the plural form. Don't do as all the pagan nations and all their abominations, plural. But it's not used as often in the singular plus when it's coupled with this verb, did, an abomination, it's even less. And when we look at all the other instances where we find this verb, did, an abomination, remember, this is an allusion where a biblical writer alludes back to another biblical writer or another biblical text. You know where we find that? Leviticus 20:13. So what the prophet of Ezekiel was doing was linking the sin of Sodom with a sin in Leviticus, cross-referencing. Once they're tied together. So anytime people talk about Genesis 19, they're missing the point when they're not tying it to Leviticus 20:13. They're totally missing the point. They're not reading the Bible canonically. That's one example right there. And I'm gonna show you more. So what is Leviticus 20:13? We'll get to there get to there in a moment, but I want to talk about that to know part. How do we know whether to know is sexual or not? How many of you, how many, this is a little side note, how many of you guys ever heard this argument that the word homosexual was wrongly inserted into the Bible? <laughs> right? I mean, I know for adults that sounds crazy, but actually among the young adults, is that not like one of the main arguments that you hear today? The people who make that argument on TikTok, you know what they don't say? The word sex is not even found in the Old Testament. So if the word sex is not even found in the Old Testament, why would sexuality have a word? So if there's no word for sex in the Old Testament, does that mean the ancient Israelites didn't know what sex was? Yes or no? Whew. There's no specific word for sex in the Old Testament. What did they use instead? To know, to lay, 
to see one's nakedness. So they didn't have the word, but they knew the concept. So when people say they didn't have the word, let's, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about is the concept there, and the concept definitely is in Scripture. So do we know, you know, to know? Most of the time it does mean like knowledge, to know, but how do we know that no has a sexual connotation? Well, context. In Genesis chapter four, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve. Like if that's all we had, would it be, hi, my name's Adam. My name's Eve. Let's chill. Could that be what it means? Uh, well, we don't know because we don't have any more context, but we do. The verse continues and said, she conceived and bore Cain. Hmm. Hi, my name's Adam. Hi, my name's Eve. Oops, you're pregnant. <laughs> Clearly, there's a sexual connotation there. And if you think otherwise, let's talk afterward. You see, there's a sexual connotation. Do we have that in Genesis 19? Well, let's look. So it says, bring these men out so we can know them. And then three verses later, the same Hebrew verb to know occurs, where it says, my daughters have never known a man. Same verb. Like, you can't have one meaning here, another meaning there. I mean, could it be that Lot's daughters never met men before? Like, they never knew what men were? They never had friends with men before? I don't know. Maybe they were homeschooled. But most likely, <laughs> most likely, they knew men. They just didn't have sex with men. So we see clearly there's a sexual connotation and like every person that says that we just don't know what's going on in Genesis 19, whether they're sexual or not. I even hear theologians, professors at seminaries and Bible colleges claim that Genesis 19 is not a good passage to use to talk about homosexuality. They miss the end of Genesis 19. It's that part of Genesis 19 that we don't, include in Sunday schools often, that we don't talk with our kids often, and maybe that there could be a reason. Genesis, end of Genesis 19, where Lot and his daughters, they're supposed to go to Zoar, but instead they go off to the caves, and then Lot's daughters say, you know, we, you know, we don't have any men around to preserve offspring for our father. So what did they do? They get daddy drunk. The older daughter goes and daddy first night. Second night, they get daddy drunk again. Younger daughter goes in. Tell me, how could virgin daughters come up with such a grotesque idea if they hadn't lived in a city that was full of sexual sin? Genesis 19 is oozing with sexual immorality. There's no way around understanding that passage. See how actually reading the Bible contextually and canonically actually just opens up, like there's no way of reading this passage. No way. I believe if revisionists actually read the Bible canonically, they wouldn't be revisionists. So let's move on. So we see here, so according to text, yada, to know, means, you know, Lot's daughters didn't know a man. So obviously there's a sexual connotation there. Um, but this key here is reading the Bible canonically and seeing this allusion of, in Ezekiel, 
tying the sin of Sodom with Leviticus 20.13. So let's turn to Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. And this passage, revisionists will admit this is one of the hardest passages to get around because it says here, you shall not lie with a, uh, with a, uh, with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination in the singular. 20.13 says... If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed or did an abomination. That's exactly where Ezekiel got that from. And actually in the Hebrew text, the verb and the, and the, um, and the, and the, and the noun, direct object, are actually right next to each other as well. And this goes on, they shall surely be put to death. So Revisions will admit this is one of the hardest passages around. It's so clear, black and white. Man shall not lie with a male. It's wrong. How do they get around it? Well, they try to do some contextual work because if you look at 1822, the before that it says, don't sacrifice your child to Molech. Molech was an idol. And in some idol temples, they would sacrifice your children to it. And then other idol temples, they would actually go there to have sex. Mostly it's women who were working there. They would call them temple prostitutes. But sometimes you would have men that would be temple prostitutes as well. So a revision will say that's what's being condemned here, not a monogamous same-sex relationship, according to revisionists. Revisionists, they're just trying to say this is not a universal condemnation. It's just condemning one form of, of same-sex relationship. What one form is it? It's the form that's in an idol temple. So in other words, gay sex is actually okay. Just don't do it to an idol. I'm going to respond. <laughs> Another way, but I'm going to kind of go through these uh, arguments first. Another way is to look at the word abomination. They say abomination just refers to uncleanness, not, uh, it refers to impurity and uncleanness, not immorality. Because don't you know, the eagle is called an abomination. I mean, what's the symbol of our country? The bald eagle. And according to Old Testament, that's unclean. That's an abomination. Also, shellfish is an abomination. Anyone like shrimp? Anyone like seafood? Yeah, or, 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 or shellfish? Well, according to the Bible, that is wrong. You're not supposed to eat it. And revisionists will say, if you don't follow that, but you do follow this law on homosexuality, you're just picking and choosing. You're a hypocrite. Again, I'll respond to these, but I want to present these first. Another way is just saying there's whole swaths in the Old Testament that don't apply to us at all. There's this holiness code. Leviticus 17 through 26, where there's things in here that are just kind of out there. You're not supposed to have sex with a menstruating woman, a man. You're not supposed to make different animals. You're not supposed to make cedar fabric. You're not supposed to cut the edges of your hair. You're not supposed to have tattoos. So how do we respond to this? And we'll start at the top. Does this only refer to uh, homosexuality in a idol temple? Or is it a universal condemnation? So if this is only referring to a cult male prostitute, there's actually a specific Hebrew word for that. And it's the Hebrew word kedeshim that we find in Deuteronomy. We find that in 2 Kings. We find this in Job. So Moses knew about this word, but he didn't use that word. And that isn't enough by itself. But I'm going to show you the other reasons that show that this is clearly about same-sex relationships. And if there's a limiting of a scope, in other words, revisionists are trying to say this is not a universal condemnation. Well, that would need to apply also to the condemnation against Molech. 
don't sacrifice your child to Molech. Is that a universal condemnation or is it only wrong to sacrifice your child when you're doing it to Molech? And I know parents, you at times want to sacrifice your children, <laughs> but it's always wrong. Don't do it, whether you're doing it to Molech or not. And that word abomination. Well, abomination, that word does refer sometimes to uncleanness, but also refers to immorality. And actually the word that's, um, uh, Proverbs 6, there's things, pride is an abomination, you know, so we, those aren't unclean issues, those are morality issues. And um, the word used for uh, lobster or eagle or unclean animals, it's a different Hebrew word. And again, that's not the only reason why it's, there's a difference. But for us to know why the unclean food laws don't carry over, but other laws do, because for example, you know, when, when we say, well, Leviticus doesn't apply to us, well, you know where the second commandment comes from? Well, first commandment, where does that come from? Deuteronomy 6, right? We all know that. Most don't know where second commandment comes from. Leviticus 19. Isn't that interesting? I think that's super interesting because what are the two passages we're looking at now? when it comes to homosexuality. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. We have the sandwich, because in Leviticus 19 is the second commandment. So people who want to erase Leviticus 18 through 20 are erasing the second commandment. It's Leviticus 19, verse 18 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't sound very outdated to me, does it? So um, how do we know that these food laws definitely do not carry over to the New Testament? If you like pork, anyone like bacon? <laughs> yes, can I get a hallelujah for bacon? <laughs> but the Old Testament says don't eat it. And I mean, we could say, well, but you know, we don't follow anything in the Old Testament, but then why are we still following things like love the Lord your God, why are we following, the, you know, are we picking and choosing? Because that's what it seems like to the world, we're picking and choosing. Because we like bacon, which I do. But that doesn't, you know, why does that not carry over stuff like that? Well, if you like bacon, you better read the Bible canonically. Because in the New Testament, remember at the beginning I was saying, Old Testament, what is it meaning? What is it meaning and does it apply to us today? Well, there are, still, there are some things in the Old Testament that do apply to us, but how do we know for certain what does and does not? Well, we definitely know what doesn't is when we read the Bible canonically because when we read the Old Testament, we must always read it in light of the New Testament. Read the Bible canonically. If you like any type of pork, you better know Acts chapter 10 where Peter gets this vision. What's falling down from heaven? A white sheet. And what's on the white sheet? unclean animals. So like I'm imagining a big Chinese buffet. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dropping from heaven. Take and eat. And Peter's like, nothing unclean has touched my lips. So he doesn't like Chinese food, whatever. But the voice from heaven says, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. Thus showing that Jesus did not abolish the law. He's fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the unclean laws. So because of that vision, we know that we can eat bacon. Hallelujah. But that's actually not the main point of Acts chapter 10. 
It's not just saying that the unclean food laws have been fulfilled, but all unclean laws have been fulfilled in Jesus. And as a result of that, every one of you in this room that is not Jewish, so I'm not talking about you, Pastor Ross. <laughs> every one of you, I mean, who's Gentile? That would be the vast majority of us. If you are not Jewish, and you, you know, you're goyim, you're Gentile, we're actually unclean. But because of Jesus. I'm getting goosebumps. He has washed us clean. And we can come into the holy of holies because he tore the veil from top to bottom. That should get an amen. So we read the Bible canonically. See, that's the key that we all miss. Sometimes, not all miss, but often we miss. So that's why, I mean, these food laws, they definitely don't carry over. I mean, all, all unclean laws. But here is when the revision will say, okay, well, that sin, that sin of homosexuality is just an unclean law. I've heard that. I've heard that as well. How do I know that this is not an unclean law? The penalty. Like, remember those other things that I listed, like a man in ancient Israel, he was not supposed to touch his wife during that time of month. You know what was the penalty if he did? He would be unclean for seven days. Cast out. But after seven days, you know what can happen? Go through this process of cleansing. How many of you guys have ever been to Israel? Remember in Israel, did you ever notice, like, especially in the old city and stuff, all like the, where they would dig in the ground and all those bad, you know, places, you know what that was for? Cleansing. They had to continually, continually clean themselves. You know why we don't have to clean ourselves now anymore? We just need to clean ourselves one time. Jesus. The book of Hebrews. I mean, the writer of Hebrews, he just says that he is better. Better than any priest. Better than any angel. He washes us clean once. Amen? Amen. But back then, you were unclean by doing this, doing that. And so they would be unclean for seven days, not death. What's the penalty for mixing seed in your field? Throw your crop out, not death. What's the penalty of mixing fabric? Throw your garment out, not death. What's the penalty when you ate an unclean food? You're unclean until evening. So if you had a late night snack, you could make it worthwhile. You know, you got to weigh your options. You know what I mean? <laughs> But what's the penalty for a same-sex relationship? Death. And I know, that sounds really extreme. Because right away, people are like, you say we need to put gays and lesbians to death. No, because vengeance belongs to the Lord. But I am going to say something that might sound radical. I do believe the death penalty still stands for this. And you know why? Because I read the Bible canonically. Because Paul says the wages of sin is death. So it doesn't matter whether you gossiped or lied or cheated. We all deserve death. And that is why today we all need Christ. So let's move on uh, to David and Jonathan. Did you know they were lovers according to some? Look at these verses. I know you're like, that's crazy. But look at these verses. Remember, like if you're just a, a college student going, you know, and your college professor tells you this, their love was more wonderful than that of women. They became one. They, Jonathan took off his robe. They kissed. What? 
Don't we live in a hypersexualized world where today two men can't even love each other or even show affection without saying no homo? We have lost how men are supposed to love one another, even in the church. And any of you guys who like basketball remember Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas? How many of you guys remember that? What was the, what is the crazy radical thing that they did whenever they played each other half court? What did they do? You guys remember that? Anyone? Or you, you know what I'm talking about? They kissed. That was just scandalous. Because men, we don't kiss. That's for sissies. They're like, we don't care. I mean, that was before. They, didn't they have a kind of a falling out? That was before that. They were like best, best friends. And they kissed on, I don't think they kissed on the lips. They're not Russian. <laughs> Russians don't do that anymore. Remember that in the Olympics? We're like, ooh, right? <laughs> I don't think they do that anymore. But I think they kissed on the cheek. But even that was scandalous in like a macho culture. I mean, the Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, that doesn't mean you really have to do that, but I mean, there should be nothing wrong about showing some affection to one another without now people thinking you're gay. But see how much this hyper overall sexuality has um, occurred where like we can't even, I don't want them to think anything. And maybe that's affecting us, men. We're called to love one another. I mean, took off his robe. There's something that they did in the ancient times called layering. <laughs> so you take off your robe, doesn't mean you disrobe and you were just butt naked underneath. They had layers, right? Jonathan, who was Jonathan? Son of Saul. And who was Saul? King. So Jonathan was actually next in line. He was supposed to be king. Now, for kings and princes, what do their robes mean? Anything? Authority, royalty, power. The fact that the heir apparent took off his robe, his royal robe, and gave it to David was not to say, I'm getting naked with you. It was to say, all the authority that is invested to me as the heir apparent I am giving to you because I know you, David, are the anointed one. That's what that means. See how our over-sexualized mess from the culture has impacted the way we view the Bible? In that same passage, you know what else Jonathan gave to David? His sword. Jonathan was a warrior. His sword was his entire life. And to give any warrior giving your sword to anyone else is saying, you're my Lord. That's what that means. Nothing sexual about that. We live in a hypersexualized world, don't we? Two men can't love each other without people thinking they're gay. And men, how many married men do we have in here? Men, you better love someone more than your wife. And his name is Jesus. You better. We're called to men. But that love, there's nothing sexual about it. I, I tell youth all the time, love does not equal sex. What does the world say? Right, right? Sex is the most intimate form of love. How many of you guys know people who are having sex and they don't love each other? Like all of Hollywood. 
also love does not equal romance. Like I always cringe like on Valentine's Day, you know, I love you. It's like, you don't even know what love is, <laughs> right? Love does not equal romance. Um, God loves us more than anyone else, but there's nothing sexual about it. Let's say the two greatest commandments are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing sexual about that. There's actually nothing about marriage in those two great commandments. Doesn't say marry God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Doesn't have, se have sex with God. Neither the second commandment. You know, marry yourself as you marry your neighbor. No, as you would marry yourself, that would be weird. <laughs> See how we have so confused what love is? And note that they never became one flesh. Their souls were knit together, but they never became one flesh. There's a big difference. And let's be honest. If you know anything about David, if you were paying attention in Sunday school, you would know that David's issue was not men. <laughs> Let's be real. All right? Let's be real. If David really was gay on that fateful night and he was looking at Bathsheba bathing, if he was gay, he would not say, she's beautiful, I want to have sex with her. Maybe he would say, who's her decorator, I love her robe, but not, I want to have sex with her, right? I mean, it's really outside the realm of possibility that this would even occur. And people would say, well, maybe he's bi, but I mean, if he was, then why would, was, is there no mention of this at all? And I mean, if he was bi, then he would not only have you know, hundreds of wives and concubines, but also hundreds of men as well. So we see that, I mean, it's, nothing's even mentioned in there. Jonathan also was married himself. Um, and the covenant that they made together was not a covenant of marriage. It's a covenant of you are my brother. If you die, I'm going to take care of your children. And that's exactly what David did. He took care of Mephibosheth. Say that fast 10 times. <laughs> Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, yep. Uh, so forth, let's go to the New Testament. Uh, oh no, slavery. I've heard this a lot where people say the Bible condones slavery and, the Bi and it's, slavery is wrong, so the Bible's wrong on slavery, so it's also wrong on homosexuality. People don't realize that the Bible never condones modern slavery, which against one people group, they had no rights, but actually in ancient times, slaves could have rights. They did have the bad form of involuntary slavery, but there was slavery that was voluntary, that they could get paid, they could buy their, their, their freedom. They could get an education. That was not modern slavery. So the problem is actually slave trade, involuntary slavery, and guess what? Exodus 21, 16 gives the death penalty for that. Regrettably, many translations get that wrong and translate Exodus 20, 16, 21, 16 as kidnapping. It's not kidnapping. It's talking about slavery. If a man has a man, steals him, and sells him, the man should be put to death. It gives a death penalty for slave trade. I just wonder if we actually got that verse correct. 400 years ago, we could have changed Western history for the better. So let's move on to the New Testament. Jesus was silent. Well, there's a lot of things that Jesus was silent on. Bestiality, does that mean he was okay with that? No. no. Why was Jesus silent about bestiality? Because no one in first century Israel questioned it. Rabbis were not sitting around and be like, hmm, what about Fido? You know, no. They were not 
think, you know, that was, no one was like confused about it. So in the same way, no one was confused. No one in first century Israel was debating whether same-sex relationships were sinful or not. It, they knew it was completely wrong. So he didn't need to reiterate it. And uh, if he actually thought it was okay, I think he would have corrected them if he thought it was. I'm just saying, you know, in a hypothetical situation, but he didn't. Furthermore, Jesus did affirm biblical sexuality. If you have your notes, underline this. This is the strongest apologetic, I believe, for why marriage is between one man and one woman. It's Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. They're parallel passages where Jesus is asked about divorce and his answer goes back to Genesis. Jesus did this all the time by he was the one that was alluding back to Scripture over and over and over. He was actually, I mean, he is the Word of God, but he was actually affirming the Word of God. He was alluding back and showing this intertextual echoes. So turn to Romans 1, and and we're just going to go fast here because I'm going a little over. I have this tendency to do this. Um, So Romans chapter 1 I'll read it here. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passages for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature or unnatural. This is the only passage in the Bible that's talking about women and women relationships, lesbian relationships. Only passage, Romans 1. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So the question is, what is Paul talking about when he's talking about natural and unnatural? That's where the debate goes on. Revisionists will say things like, natural does not refer to a monogamous same-sex relationship because that's natural for him. Super postmodern. What's natural for you may not be natural for someone else. What is right for you may not be right for one another. Isn't that the world we're living in today? Which is, guess what? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Hmm. History repeating itself. So that's what people say. That's what natural means. What's natural to you. So in other words, if you are natural, if it's natural for you to be opposite sex attracted, but you have same sex sex, then that's unnatural for you. And you're like, that is just weird. It is. But where does that come from? Well, because in ancient Rome, they were a very hedonist society. So they were having orgies and they would have lots and lots of sex as women. And guess what? You just get bored with that for a while. And you're like, well, let's try something new. And that is true. That happened back then. But is that really what Paul is talking about here? Like all this hedonism, like just these heterosexual men that were just having so much sex with women, they're like, let's just try something different. Is that what's being condemned here? What's the key to reading the Bible? We read the Bible canonically. Let me show you an incredible example of how Paul, when he writes Romans 1, is pointing back to, alluding back to Genesis 1. I'm going to go back to this outline, but let me show you this chart. Romans 1 and Genesis 1. Let me show you how eight different times, this is actually incredible, how Paul in Romans 1, specifically verses 23 and 26, 27, eight 
different times was quoting from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Now, for those of you that might be astute, you might be thinking, hmm, that looks like Greek. And you're right. But isn't the Hebrew Bible written in Hebrew? It is. But 300 years before the time of Jesus, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek called the Septuagint. And the main Bible of the first century church was the Greek Old Testament. So the biblical writers actually were mainly quoting from the Greek Old Testament. And so Paul, eight different times, that's no mistake, my friends, no mistake. This wasn't like, oh, how did that happen? No, Paul was reading Paul's letters. He knew that it was being written to the first century church that knew their Bible, not like today. So when Paul's letters were being read, their ears would perk up, be like, oh, he's referring back to Genesis. They would know that. We miss that today. But this is unmistakable. This is not a coincidence. So we need to ask ourselves, why? What, what's going, why was Paul in Romans 1, 23, 26, 27, which this is about idolatry, this is about homosexuality. Why was Paul doing that? Why was he pointing back to Genesis 1? Because in Romans 1, 18 through 32, what's going on here as he's talking about idolatry, then homosexuality, then all other sins, what Paul's point here is saying, as God handed them over to their own lust and they turned to idols, why is that an issue? Because it's against Genesis. I don't know if you remember in my testimony, I mentioned how I believed the lie. And what was the lie? I began worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And that's exactly what's going on in Romans 1. The creature was worshiping the created. The created being was worshiping other created things when we, sh we should be worshiping the creator. So the same was worshiping the same when the same should be worshiping the other. And so then Paul, being a very logical guy, then brought up homosexuality, not to show this is the worst sin, but that's the next thing that is very similar. Idolatry, the same worshiping the same. Well, homosexuality is the same having sex with the same. And why is that wrong? Because it's against Genesis. So what is natural? According to Genesis. What is unnatural? Contrary to Genesis. And male and female is pointing back to Genesis. God created order is natural. That's what Paul, it's not talking about natural law, kind of a more Catholic and more Greco-Roman a philosophical approach where it's just kind of what is just natural in general, Paul was using natural to refer back to creation. So this is an example of how we read the Bible canonically and show how Romans is tied to another biblical text. But we'll just finish with 1 Corinthians 6 where it's a list of sins. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, you have all this, you know, all these things, do not know the unrighteous Milan and heretic of God, do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revelers, etc., uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's a list of sins. 1 Timothy 1 is the same thing, but we'll look at just at 1 Corinthians 6 because it's using one 
the same Greek word, and it's a compound word. Compound word is when two words are kind of pushed together. That's a compound word. And that compound word in Greek is arsenikoitai. That's that this is two words, arsene and koite, smashed together. So the interpretive issue is this one compound word is not found anywhere else before the time of the New Testament. No other text has this word. So it's a new word. It occurs 200 years later. Now, I'm sure biblical I mean, other writers used it, but we don't have any existing manuscripts because a lot of them were probably just, they're just old and they just kind of got lost or disintegrated. And uh, so we don't have any occurring. So that poses a little bit of interpretive problem. What's the meaning of this, this, this compound word? This is where the debate comes in. Revisionists will say this has nothing to do with a monogamous same-sex relationship. They claim. And they're like, it has to do with pedophilia or something like that. What's the key to reading the Bible? Reading the Bible? Canonically. So certainly, we don't find this one word anywhere else. But let's just split those two words apart. Let's see where these two words might occur elsewhere. And guess where we find these two words apart? In Leviticus 20, 13. When you split them apart, the word is male, and koite means bed or sleep. In other words, where it says in Leviticus 20, 13, you shall not sleep with a male. You shall not have sex with a male. You shall not lay with a male. It is an abomination. Remember earlier when I said Old Testament text, how do we know when an Old Testament text doesn't apply to us? Well, the New Testament says so. But how do we know whether something from the Old Testament definitely applies to us today? Even though a lot of it has been fulfilled in Christ, how do we know definitely that something does apply to us today when we read the Bible canonically and the New Testament says so? When the New Testament author says this law applies to the church today, then we know for certain that it does. And Paul doesn't do that once in 1 Corinthians 6. He does it twice in 1 Timothy 1. So our saying koite, it basically means men who bed or sleep with males. Men who sleep with males. Now, I've heard this argument where people say, well, that word male just refers to child because in Leviticus we have this. The problem with that is Leviticus, it says both of them shall be put to death. Both of them shall be punished. Why would you then punish the child? So we see clearly that this Old Testament passage still applies to us. But the beauty of all of this is Paul stops or he goes on and says this, such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Help us, Lord God, to not just be hearers of your word, not just doers, but people who live your word and preach your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.